just a little bit too much. Too much. Romans, Romans 15. Can y'all believe that we are nearing the end of the study of Romans? Some of y'all are like, seems like it's been forever. <laughs> it's been this entire year. But um, I hope that along this journey through this book this year, you've learned some things and been reminded of some things and been challenged in some ways. And I know I certainly have. And if you've been listening to our last few sermons, and that includes today, um, I think the, the theme I want to get across to all of us is to examine ourselves and ask the question, how am I, how am I treating other people? Am I treating other people, particularly believers, with respect and, and honor and love? And especially, as we saw last week and we see again today, am I being too judgmental or too critical toward others? And just to be very blunt, you know, if we are Christians and we are being judgmental or critical toward other Christians for things that don't directly that aren't directly linked to the gospel or explicitly spelled out in Scripture, then we are in sin and need to repent of that. I think that's pretty blunt, but also I think that's very true. And I would say this: probably every one of us fall into that category at one at some time or another. Even mature Christians at times fall into this category where we judge or critical on pe- toward people who may have a minor disagreement with, with us. And so my, my, my prayer for, our, for us this week, for you, the church, my prayer has been that we would all, that God would help us grow and mature in our faith to the place where we can recognize when we are being judgmental or critical in a way that's not pleasing to God. That's a pretty good goal, isn't it? God, help us to, to see when we are being this way that we might repent of it and move forward in a, in a more biblical, more godly way. And so that's what we're going to talk about again more uh, here this morning. And, and we talked last week about the two groups of people. The weak in faith were the people who they held strongly to man-made traditions or things that weren't really, um, again, explicitly spelled out in Scripture. And the strong in faith were those who, who more understand, I think, more fully what the Bible is and is not restrictive about. And when you get to chapter 15, what you're going to see is that Paul calls the strong in faith to, to really lead the way. He calls the strong in faith to be a Christ-like example of service to the church. And I hope that's most of us in here today, and I hope this will be a challenge for us to, to be a leader, even in our church, in this area. I'm going to give you four parts to today's sermon, and they'll get shorter as we go through each part. The first one will be the longest. But the first one is the responsibility of believers, the responsibility of believers. Before we read it, the first couple of verses there, I was just thinking about some things related to this, and I grew up in Jones County. Anybody ever been there before? Some people have, yeah. And a lot of, a lot of chicken houses in Jones County. Did y'all know that? A lot of, it's like and I didn't live next to one, but I couldn't drive far without smelling or seeing chicken houses. I, I've been in a few, but I never got, I never had to work in one, thank the Lord. But I, I've been to some, and, and, and I'm not an expert on chicken, except for I eat them about every day. But I know that I've read about how you can put chickens in a, in a coop or in a pen, and they will, they will develop what's called a pecking order. You've heard that phrase before, right, a pecking order? And the whole point of that is these chickens will, like, one, the, whoever the boss is of the chickens or whatever will, like, strut around and, like, strut his stuff and, like, you know, um, 
try to try to bully the other chickens. And if that doesn't work, they'll actually start pecking each other. Sometimes even drawing blood. Sometimes they'll even kill another chicken to prove that they are they're the top chicken or whatever. And and so what happens is when this happens, this pecking order happens among chickens. They all fall in line. And this determines which chicken gets the food first, the water first, who gets the best place to sit in the coop. And so it's, a, it's an interesting thing that these chickens do. And I, I mention that to you because a lot of churches have a pecking order where certain people get their way, and they do so in a very ungodly manner. And I do believe God has set up a an order of leadership in the church, right? Christ and pastors and the church congregation works together. And But I'm talking about churches where people just kind of run rampant and do what they want to do. Have you ever heard of churches like this? Look at, I call these coop, chicken coop churches. Look at a few descriptions. They, in chicken, chicken coop churches, I just made this up by the way, people think I can just say whatever I want to say to people. Ever had that happen to you before, or just me? Had the, the most mean things I've ever been told were by people in church in my life. The second one, people think I can do whatever I want to do. I can treat people however I want to treat people. And the reason why people do this, there's various reasons. I think mainly is a lot of people don't know Jesus. That's probably number one. But other reasons why some people grow up, enti- they're entitled because they, they grew up in a church and they think that's my church. I can do whatever I want to do. There's people that do that. There's some people that rise to certain positions in the church, maybe even the position of pastor, and they think, well, I can just kind of do whatever I want to do. And just because you're in leadership, just because you have a, a job such as pastor doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want to do, right? Uh, you must still follow the scripture as best you can. Some people just try to bully others with their own opinions and their own traditions. And the reason I mention this to you is that this is not how the Bible teaches things to be done. And I want to make sure as a church we, we, we understand that we want Christ and the Word of God to lead our church and to lead everything about it. And so no person who comes into our church with their own opinions and tries to push their own agenda will be allowed to do so. Does that make sense? And I say that as pastor, I think we agree as congregation. We want to make sure we're uplifting the gospel and uplifting Christ. And I do think our church is a welcoming church. I think we welcome people when people come in. And we want, we want people to come, but at the same time, uh, we're not going to become a chicken coop, uh, Lord willing. That's our goal. And so I say all of this to say the responsibility, the responsibility of the believer is not to dominate their church family, but to love, accept, and lift up their church family. Are you loving, accepting, and lifting up the fellow members of your church? That is a part of the goal of being a Christian. And that's why you must attend church, right? Because it's hard to love, accept, and lift up your church family if you're never around the family. That's one reason we must attend. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Romans 15, listen to verses 1 and 2 on the responsibility of the believer. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Here he tells us that the strong believers are to bear with the weaker brothers. Does that mean they're just to like be like, there's that guy again. He's talking about that minor issue again. Here he goes. Is that, is that bearing with someone? 
that's not really that's not really the best way to do it. It's not like you roll your eyes at someone. Here he goes again talking about that. That's not, that's not really the best way. This the, the idea here of bearing with uh, the weak is to accept them and not to judge them. It means to support them. It means that again, as he says in verse two, our goal is that we don't live to please ourselves, but even live to please others. I know Christians who spend most of their time arguing about secondary issues. Now, some people just like to debate, and that's kind of fun. That can be fun. Some of us do that. Um, but here's my, here's my deal. If you spend more time debating your secondary issues than you do talking about Jesus Christ as Lord or prayer or something else that's of vital importance, then what are you doing? Right? If, uh, let's, let's make an example. If you, if you come to church, and we're only here for an hour or an hour and a half or whatever, but if you come to church and you spend most of your time thinking and talking about what other people are wearing, then you're missing the mark, right? Man, preacher, don't have a tie on. You know, you're missing the mark. Like, talk about Jesus. Talk about your prayer life. Come tell the preacher what God has done in your life lately. That's where we need. That's the where we need to get to. And, and you can win all the arguments you want to win about things like that. But, but if we don't honor God and we don't love others and bear with those in our church and live to please others, not ourselves, then what good is winning all the arguments in the world? Paul's point here. The Apostle Paul's point is we need to find fulfillment by taking our eyes off of self. And as we build up others, that'll also build up us. If we spend our time building up others, that will also build up us. Look at, again, verse 2 says, uh, we are to please his neighbor for his good to edification. And the idea here I want to look at is the last part, for edification. That means to, to build up. And listen, at times that might be us as, as the stronger believer, the stronger in faith saying, hey, let's talk about the scripture and let's kind of figure it out. And that's okay to show people maybe different things in the Bible. But the way we usually go is we have a judgmental or an insensitive attitude. And if we do that too often, we can cause others to stumble. None of us in here want to cause each other to stumble in our faith, do we? Would you agree with me that it's hard enough to follow Jesus like it is? Because my biggest problem in my spiritual journey is, is me, right? Me, I'm, I'm the biggest problem of myself, trying to discipline myself to pray and read the scriptures and serve God. And that's probably true for all of us. But how much more difficult is it if we're causing each other to stumble? If we're hurting each other's faith by the way we live and the attitudes we have. Instead, he says here on a very positive note, live to please your neighbor. Live to build them up. Now, this doesn't mean we pander to people. This doesn't mean we accept sin, but we want to please others. Philippians 2 very much parallels Romans 15. And in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We say so generically, I think, as Christians, love people. We say that a lot. Love others. Love people. A part of loving people is to count them more significant than yourself. A part of loving people is to not only look out for yourself and your interests, but theirs as well. And no place should that happen more than, of course, the family, but also the faith family in the church. It is a primary responsibility of the members of this church to love one another, 
by looking out for the interests of another. Number two, notice secondly here, the, the example of Christ. We see this in verse three. For even Christ pleased not himself. Let's stop there. If anyone could have lived for self, it should have been Christ, right? The Son of God, God himself. He could have come when he came the first time and he could have, he could have been a king and did whatever he wanted to do. He was, he was Christ. But it says here, even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on, on me. The point of this, and this is a quote, by the way, from Psalm 69. The point of this is that, that Jesus came and took abuse and he suffered for God's glory. Those people who hated God and hated Jesus, he took their reproach. He took the reproach of those who hated him, right? That even includes us. The Bible says that in Ephesians 2, we are the, before we came to Christ, we are the enemies of God. We are his enemies, and so that means Jesus took the reproaches of even us who at one time were his enemies. When we respond rightly, when we respond rightly to people as Christ did, it's always the best way to do it. When, when people make us angry, when people make us mad, when people annoy us, we can lash out, and that almost always leads us to sin. But we can also respond in a Christ-like manner, as he did. He is our example of putting others ahead of himself. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then I love Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'm sorry, that's small writing, but y'all can listen. He says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. As we meditate on Philippians 2 and see the example of Christ in putting others ahead of himself, we are challenged to put others ahead of ourselves as well. Number three. Quickly, number three is the encouragement for believers. I see this in verses four through seven. Find those verses with me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. The point of this section here and the encouragement, I, I'm saying the encouragement of believers is we see this scripture from Psalm about Jesus, and that is an encouragement to us. He says here that knowing Christ and knowing the scriptures produces in us endurance, and we need spiritual endurance. Do you know people 
Or have you ever been the person who says, I'm going I'm I'm to turn over a new leaf and follow Jesus better, but then two or three weeks later, they're back to their old lifestyle. And that's lacking of spiritual endurance. We need God-given, Christ-given endurance and perseverance to follow him. Because the whole world is trying to knock us down, right? The world is trying to knock us down. It's trying to knock churches down and people down and Christians down, and we need spiritual endurance. Another thing he mentions there is, is not only endurance, but again, encouragement. We need encouragement. I imagine in this room, we probably get discouraged every single day about something. Some of you will go to work tomorrow and something will happen that discourages you. Some of you will go home after this. Some of you will be discouraged before you get home. I will. I have a long drive. You'll be discouraged. But we need encouragement. And look, I love getting encouragement from you. I love when others encourage me. But the greatest encouragement we all can get is from noticing and seeing and thinking on the example of Christ and who he is and what he's done. That is our greatest encouragement. As I read, as I read those verses to you, 4 through 7, it seems very prayer-like to me. It's like he's praying. I, I think Paul knows that for these things to happen, it must be a very spiritual thing. It must be God through the Holy Spirit working in us. Because as you notice in verse 6, it says that we might with one mind and one mouth glorify God. With one mind, right? That we are we're agreeing, agreeance. Jesus is Lord and we're ready to worship him with one voice. You cannot worship as a unified church if you are divided on secondary issues. Right? It's kind of what we've been saying for the last couple of weeks. We want to make sure. And this, and this, I think, you're like, man, the preacher must know some stuff. I don't know anything. Like, for us, I feel like we have a pretty good unity here. But I want to make sure we keep it, right? This is a sermon of, of warning that we keep the unity that we do have. And we don't allow things to break that down. Number four, last point. Went quicker, didn't it? Number four is the hope for unity. I want to give you all a, an illustration. I thought of this while watching the ball game yesterday. I want you to imagine that the SEC came to Mississippi. They come to Mississippi and they say, you know what? There's not room for two SEC schools in the SEC. So you're going to have to just combine or leave the SEC. And so Mississippi State and Ole Miss get together and like, you know, I guess we'll just combine schools, right? So what would happen if those two universities combined into one school? The Mississippi State Rebel Bears or whatever it is. That sounds awful, doesn't it? And see, Alabama fans just think Alabama Auburn, I guess. But would that work? I mean, would there be protests? There'd probably be riots in the streets, right? It wouldn't work. And at the very least, if that actually happened, if these two universities came together, there would be some people who would never, ever accept it, would they? They would never accept the other group because they hate them so bad. True? And we're just talking about colleges here, by the way. They would never accept them because they don't like their ways, right? I hate that hotty toddy chant. I hate that cowbell. They, there's different things they hate about them. I hate their colors. And so they would just not accept each other. It might take years to accept each other, and even then, some would never accept it, right, Shona? Never. But watch this. In Romans, when Paul writes this book, this letter to this church, there are two groups of people that probably hated each other more than SEC rivals, or at least had deep-rooted differences 
more than a cowbell and a chant or whatever. You see, you had the Jewish believers who many held very strictly to those Old Testament laws, and many had even in some ways twisted those laws and even uh, developed man-made traditions along with those laws. And those Jewish Christians were like, hey, everyone needs to be circumcised. Everyone needs to do this. Everyone needs to do this. And the Gentile believers over here who are just now kind of coming to Christ as Savior and joining the church are like, well, we don't really, we have our own stuff. We have our own traditions, our own background, our own culture we come from. And we don't really want to accept all of these things. And the point of much of what we're reading in, in chapter 14 and again chapter 15 is that Paul is saying, you two very different groups of people, as you come together and unify in the Lord, you have to figure out a way to put some of those other differences aside for the greater good. Right? I think that's what he's saying. And in doing so, he quotes some Old Testament stuff. Look at verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, which is to say Jesus uh, died for and, and lived for the Jews. And then it says to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. So God, we know, made that Abrahamic covenant to Abraham back in Genesis where he said, I'm going to make of you a people. And he did, right, through the, through the son of through the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made a people. But back in the Abrahamic covenant, he also said this, Abraham, your people will bless all nations of the earth. Right? Not just those Jewish people. Thank God, right? Because we are Gentiles. And so the, the, the point of these scriptures here, some of these Old Testament scriptures, he lists there, we see more in 10, 11, and 12, where he says, And again he saith, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and laud him, all you people. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. And so we see these Old Testament quotes and references to remind the Jewish believers here that God is also saving and working in the Gentiles. And that these people together, these two different groups of people, must come together and worship and praise God pretty interesting isn't it i've had discussions in the past with people about like racial stuff in the church and i've had people say you know different races should not worship together in the same church i'm like that makes no sense to me whatsoever i mean they not may, they may not prefer to because of the style of worship they prefer you know and that's fine but nobody should be excluded from worshiping in our church based on a, on race right or gender or whatever, right? Everybody's welcome, you know, and, you know to come and, and hear the word. Um, but I've, I've heard people make that a, a huge, huge issue. And again, I think in Paul's day, there was, some, there was some of that. And I say these things to remind us, no matter how big or small we think an issue might be, whether it's something like that's really big in our day and time now, like race, or something small like, the tie you wear or don't wear or whatever, whatever it might be, no matter how big or small the issue in our eyes, those issues that are not Christ and that are not central to the gospel do not cause us to break from our unity, right? There, there have been times, I've been here over two years now, there have been times I've said something 
and maybe didn't even mean to, that you didn't like. But I hope if I did offend anybody without, if it's biblical, then sorry. But if I offended you with something I didn't mean to say, you know, that should not stop our unity. We can still forgive each other and, and, and love each other, right? I hope. And if, that, if any of you had done that to me, I would, I would feel the same. We can forgive and, and love each other. And Again, I think that the point of this is, as I hope I made clear with my illustration, um, are we willing to follow the commands of this scripture? From verse 1, bearing with one another. From verse 2, pleasing others, not just ourselves. All the way down to the verses we just read about praising God together. Are we willing in our church, in our setting, to put lesser things aside and come together around Christ? We have we don't have two different chants. Our chant is this Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our motto. That's our cry. And if we can agree on that, then we can agree on a lot of things. I pray that our commitment for Christ and for one another will grow even stronger. Verse 13, which is our final verse in the text. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We all need hope. We all need the power of the Holy Spirit helping us. We need joy and peace. We need all these things. And he tells us here, these things come as we work together. I want to emphasize verse 17 one more time. As I move to my conclusion, wherefore, receive one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Did, did you deserve Christ? Did I deserve Christ? Did Christ have to receive us? Did God the Father have to send his Son? Did God, does God have to look and accept that sacrifice for us? You see my point, right? If he accepted us, we should be willing to accept others. Spurgeon said on this verse, Christ did not receive us because we are perfect, because he could not see fault in us, or because he hoped to gain somewhat at our hands. Ah, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults, and seeking our good, he welcomed us into his heart. So in the same way, and with the same purpose, let us receive one another. I hope in these last couple of weeks that you've at least for a moment considered, am I being too judgmental? Am I being too critical toward my fellow believers in Christ? And do I need to repent of something? I hope in the last couple of weeks, and even, and even now, you're thinking, Lord, help me be better at showing love and appreciation and honor and care to my fellow Christians. And I hope and pray that we would be committed, as this text says, not only to live together and, and come to church together, but to truly 
glorify God together. I entitled this message, Together for the Gospel. And a church that is together can do great things. A church that is divided will not. In my life, Lord, be glorified. In my song, Lord, be glorified. In my heart, Lord, be glorified. Do you remember the last verse of that song we sang a while ago? In our church, Lord, be glorified. Let's make that our prayer. Let's bow.